This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Sales and Leases, a problem-based approach by Scott J. Burnham and Kristen Juris. The casebook is published by Callie E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Contracts Lectures. This is Chapter 1, and in this chapter, we will be giving an introduction to UCC Article 2. So moving to the scope of Article 2, that is, Transactions in Goods. Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code applies to transactions in goods. This is Section 2-102. One of the purposes of this class is to teach you how to read and use statutes. In some areas of law, such as torts, we rely more heavily on case law than on statutes in giving advice, and coming to conclusions. Sales of goods is an area of law where you must learn to begin with the statute and the official comments. Note that while the official comments are extremely valuable for purposes of interpretation, in most jurisdictions they have not been enacted by the legislature and our only persuasive authority. Cases become important when a particular UCC provision is subject to more than one interpretation. You can seldom rely on a single statute when applying the UCC. In applying a particular provision of Article 2, you often have to refer to other provisions of Article 2 or to the general provisions of Article 1. Always look at any applicable definitions, which may be in Article 1 or Article 2, and at the cross-references to other UCC sections that are contained in or immediately follow the provision you are reading. Article 2 applies to transactions in goods. 
Article 2 does not apply to transactions involving real property or services. Our first step is to determine what constitutes a good under Article 2. Then Section 2-102 specifies that Article 2 applies to transactions in goods. Transaction is not defined, but is undoubtedly a broader concept than a sale. Clearly, sales of goods are governed by Article 2, but what about gifts of goods, leases of goods, barter transactions? For this, see Article 2-304. Most operative provisions of Article 2 apply only to sales of goods. For example, the definition of contract and agreement under Section 2-106, are limited to those relating to the present or future sale of goods. Thus, wherever the term contract or agreement is used in Article 2, leases of goods are by definition excluded. Similarly, most Article 2 provisions specifically refer to a contract for the sale of goods, such as the statute of frauds found in 2-201, which states, quote, a contract for the sale of goods is not enforceable unless there is some writing, end quote. A few sections, such as section 2-403 regarding title, apply not only to sales of goods, but to gifts of goods and to entrusting of goods. Transactions intended to operate as a security transaction are specifically excluded from the scope of Article 2, C 2-102. A warning. Some leases are actually sales in substance, especially those that give ownership to the lessee at the end of the term of the lease for little or no additional consideration. Sometimes what the parties call a lease is actually a sale, where the seller retains a security interest in the goods. Now moving to mixed transactions. Article 2 does not apply to contracts for services or contracts for land, intangibles, or other items that are not Goods. Often a contract involves either both goods and services, such as the sale and installation of carpet, or both UCC goods and non UCC property. In a mixed transaction, the courts have developed two different tests to determine whether or not the transaction is within the scope of Article 2. The majority of jurisdictions have applied the predominant factor test. A well-known case, Bonebreak versus Cox, enunciated this test as follows. Quote, the test for inclusion or exclusion is whether their predominant factor, their thrust, their purposes reasonably stated, 
is the rendition of services with goods incidentally involved, that is, contract with artist for painting? Or is it a transaction of sale with labor incidentally involved, like installation of a water heater in a bathroom? End quote. In Pass versus Shelby Aviation, an airplane was brought in for a required inspection. The mechanics failed to install some bolts, resulting in an accident. Having missed the statute of limitations for negligence, which is three years, the plaintiffs sought to bring a claim for breach of express and implied warranties under the UCC, which has a four-year statute of limitation. The court enunciated four factors to look at in determining whether the contract was predominantly for goods or predominantly for services. One, the language of the party's contract, that is, whether it focused on goods versus services. Two, the nature of the business of the supplier. Is this a person who regularly sells goods or rather provides services? Three, the reason the parties entered into the contract, that is, what was bargained for, goods or services. And four, the respective amounts charged under the contract for goods and for services. No one factor alone is conclusive. For example, even where the cost of goods exceeds the cost of services, the predominant purpose may still be deemed the provision of services where the other factors support such a finding. Applying these factors, the appellate court determined that the predominant purpose of this particular contract was the provision of services rather than the sale of goods, and thus plaintiff could not assert breach of warranty claims under Article 2. Not all courts apply the same factors. See, for example, Colorado Carpet Installation versus Palermo, which define the factors as 1. The contractual language used by the parties. 2. Whether the agreement involves one overall price that includes both goods and labor, or instead calls for separate and discrete billings for goods on the one hand and labor on the other. 3. The ratio that the cost of goods bears to the overall contract price. And 4. The nature and reasonableness of the purchaser's contractual expectations of acquiring a property interest in goods. A minority of courts apply the gravamen test in determining whether a particular transaction is subject to Article 2. This test focuses on whether the gravamen of the action involves goods or services. A well-known case applying this test involved a lady who sued a beauty salon where she had received a permanent. The permanent solution was defective and caused considerable damage to her hair and scalp. 
Under the predominant factor test, most courts would find, as the trial court did, that the predominant purpose of the contract was services, and thus not subject to Article 2. But the New Jersey Supreme Court concluded that because the gravamen of her claim was the defective goods, Article 2 applied. Under the gravamen test, a single contract could be subject to two different bodies of law. That is, the UCC law for any claim involving the goods and non-UCC law for any claim relating to the services. Is this troublesome? Not if you would get the same result regardless of the law implied. But where the laws differ, and they often do regarding important issues such as the statute of limitations, the statute of frauds, warranties, and other areas of law, this may be troublesome to a court. Most mixed transactions involve goods and services. In other contracts, the mixture relates to goods and real property or intangibles, such as intellectual property. What body of law would govern in the event of a breach? Once again, courts will apply either the predominant factor test or gravamen test. Even though these tests were developed in the context of goods and services contracts. Some of the factors of the predominant factor test don't easily apply, leaving the cost of the items involved as the most influential factor. Under the principle of freedom of contract and subject to the choice of law provisions of Section 1-301, the parties can agree to choose the law applicable to the contract. For example, if you draft a mixed transaction contract, you can avoid the predominant factor test by specifying that UCC law applies to all claims relating to the goods and non-UCC law to all other claims. Now moving to the Article 2 Merchant Rules. As we have seen, Article 2 applies to transactions in goods. If a sale of goods is within Article 2, in general, it doesn't matter whether the transaction is between sophisticated or unsophisticated parties. However, there are a few occasions where Article 2 contains a rule that applies only to merchants or only between merchants. If the rule applies to a merchant, then only that party has to be a merchant. But if the rule applies between merchants, then both parties have to be merchants for the rule to kick in. And what does it mean to be a merchant? As you can imagine, when a rule applies to a merchant, it is generally because the merchant is more sophisticated in business matters and may be held to a higher standard of diligence. How does the merchant obtain that sophistication? Let's turn to the definition of merchant at section 2-104-1. The UCC distinguishes between merchants as to goods and merchants as to practices. 
Under Section 2-104-1, a merchant falls into the class of a merchant as to goods in one of three ways. One, a person who deals in goods of the kind. Two, a person who, by his occupation and not by hobby, holds himself out as having knowledge or skill peculiar to the goods involved. For example, an automobile parts dealer, although he doesn't deal in cars, may nonetheless be a merchant as to cars because by his occupation he has special knowledge of car parts and car maintenance. And three, a person who employs an agent who, by the agent's occupation, holds himself out as having knowledge or skill peculiar to the goods involved. There are three important Article 2 sections which apply only to merchants as to goods. The most important by far relates to the implied warranty of merchantability under Section 2-314, which applies only to merchants with respect to goods of that kind. The power to transfer title in an entrustment situation applies only to a merchant who deals in goods of that kind. For example, if you entrust your snowboard to a ski shop for waxing, and the shop which sells skis mistakenly sells the snowboard, a buyer in the ordinary course of business will obtain good title. And under section 2-3123, a merchant dealing in goods of a kind gives a warranty that the goods are free of infringement claims. Other merchant rules apply to both merchants in goods and merchants as to practices. It is much easier to fall into the class of merchants as to practices. This definition focuses on a person's familiarity with general business practices. And according to Section 2-104, Comment 2 would include almost every person in business. A person falls into this class by one of two means. A person who, by his occupation and not by hobby, holds herself out as having knowledge or skill peculiar to the practices involved, or a person who employs an agent who, by the agent's occupation, holds herself out as having knowledge or skill peculiar to the practices involved, such as a university that hires a purchasing agent familiar with general business practices to acquire equipment and supplies for the university. One important exclusion. Comment 2 states that the Article 2 sections providing special rules for merchants as to practices only applies to a merchant in his mercantile capacity. The special rules do not apply when the merchant is buying goods for his personal use. Carefully read Article 2 provisions to determine to whom it applies. Although most Article 2 rules apply regardless of whether either party is a merchant, 
several Article II rules are limited in their application, depending upon one or both parties' status as a merchant as to goods or practices. In addition to the three rules that apply only if a party is a merchant as to goods, the following are examples of rules whose application depends upon the merchant status of one or both parties. The Section 2-201-2 written confirmation exception to the statute of frauds applies when both parties are merchants, as indicated by the language between merchants. Section 2-207-2 regarding the battle of the forms allows additional terms to become a part of the contract when both parties are merchants, if certain requirements are met. Section 2-209-2 requires a no-oral modification clause in a form supplied by a merchant to be separately signed or initialed unless both parties are merchants, in which case the no oral modification clause does not need to be separately signed or initialed. Section 2-205 provides that an offer by a merchant to buy or sell goods may become irrevocable without consideration if certain requirements are met. Only the offeror needs to be a merchant. The obligation of good faith applies to merchants and non-merchants alike. But the pre-2001 version of the UCC Articles 1 and 2, which still exists in several jurisdictions, applies a higher standard to merchants versus non-merchants. And under Section 2-509, if the seller is a merchant as to goods or practices, the risk of loss passes to the buyer when the buyer receives the goods. If the seller is a non-merchant, the risk of loss passes to buyer on tender of delivery. Now, special cases regarding merchant status. Can a government be a merchant as to goods or practices? When presented with this question, the Montana Supreme Court in Western Sign versus State conceded that it may well be that a state may be a merchant in some circumstances, but ruled that the burden of proof to support such classification rests upon the opposing party. If a government entity makes purchases through a purchasing division, and the purchasing division has knowledge regarding general purchasing practices, the government should be a merchant as to practices under the agency rules of Section 2-104. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.